Welcome to the Augustine Podcast, a conversation about the life and work of St. Augustine of Hippo. I'm your host, Joshua Blanchard. My guest today is Dr. Veronica Roberts-Ogle. Dr. Ogle is an assistant professor of philosophy and the associate director of the honors program at Assumption University, where she also serves as the director of the Law, Ethics, and Constitutional Studies program. She received her bachelor's degree in philosophy and political science at Boston College, where she also earned her master's degree in philosophy. She holds a second master's degree in political science from the University of Notre Dame, where she earned her PhD in political science working with Mary Keyes. She has published several articles on Augustine and Augustine's moral thought in journals such as Augustinian Studies, Studio Patristica, and the Journal of Religious Ethics. She has numerous book chapters on Augustine's moral and political thought and has co-edited the book Latria and Idolatry, Augustine and the Quest for Right Relationship, co-edited with Paul Camacho. Most importantly for today's conversation, she is the author of Politics and the Earthly City in Augustine's City of God, published by Cambridge Press in 2020. Dr. Ogle, thank you so much for joining me. Tell me about yourself and... Tell me a little bit about how you got into Augustine, your work, yeah. your career, and what in the world are you doing at Assumption? Yeah, um, uh, thank you for having me on this. It's, it's just really fun. I'm looking forward to our conversation. A um, little bit about me. So, uh, yeah, I teach in a philosophy department at Assumption University, uh, which is a small, actually Augustinian college. The Augustinians of the Assumption started it. Um, and they're really interesting because they were founded in response to the French Revolution. And uh, they were interested in particular in Augustine's City of God as a way of um, responding to it. And they thought the assumption was uh, a mystery that pushed back against the rationalism of, of, the, of the French climate at the time. So uh, I, I've been very much enjoying being in in a school that has that heritage. Um, but so I'm a political theorist by training in a philosophy department, actually about to move to a humanities department um, at a different Augustinian school, Villanova. So like, I, I like to be at Augustinian schools um, and also not in political science departments. So uh, yeah, I guess I never really studied political theory wanting to just do that. I've always been a bit interdisciplinary. I came out of a great books program in a philosophy department. And I guess I've always kind of wanted to think about political questions in their larger context. So I guess that would be a way of, of opening it up that, um, yeah, not, not just a political theorist, but I think that in order to answer the interesting questions about politics, you have to think about the questions that precede them. And um, mm. I've kind of tried to do that. Cool. So just tell me again, where'd you go to school? You said you did your undergrad, you say in philosophy? Yeah, Boston College. I was okay. a philosophy political science major, but they had this really great um, interdisciplinary great books program in the philosophy department called the Perspectives Program. Um, so that was what got me interested in philosophy. That's what got me interested in Augustine. I read Augustine my freshman year, his confessions. And um, uh, he was just a person that I always returned to because of the way that he talks about the human heart, his understanding of the human condition. And it seemed to me that, yeah, if you're going to think about politics 
you start by thinking about how human beings are shaped by their political communities, but you also have to think about, well, what are human beings? And um, Augustine, I thought, was a really astute starting point for thinking about that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And did you go from Boston College straight to Notre Dame? I did. Yep. Yeah. I did a master's at BC um, in philosophy, and then I went to Notre Dame for the PhD in political science. Great. What's the, just for my own curiosity, what's the philosophy program like at Boston College? Yeah, so um, it's really, I think they think of themselves as a kind of continental department. Um, at least that's, that was the language used at the time. Uh, but I mostly studied, you know, just history of philosophy all the way through. Um, yeah, so it was really focusing on this conversation that had, you know, begun in ancient Greece going all the way through. and. Uh, not really a lot of analytic philosophy, so I didn't really know anything about that. I still really don't know too much about that. Um, <laughs> just that if that helps. Yeah, yeah. you're not missing out on too much. It's, I, I, I did my I, master's in analytic philosophy, and Augustine's covered most of it. I felt like I spent most of my master's translating medieval arguments into analytic layouts. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, Augustine's rhetoric is kind of the opposite, right? That immediately speaks to the heart. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah you're not missing too much. Uh, it's worth knowing, and I won't, I won't throw names, but pretty much every analytic philosopher that I've talked to who does Augustine or any medieval philosophy just kind of says, like, yeah, it's a language, you learn it. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, it's just a language I haven't learned, and so, you know sure if I did I would I would benefit from it but I just never part of my education yeah fair enough we're good yeah. what made you go to Notre Dame um what made you sort of choose yeah. the project you did and how did that project take shape well um so I was doing my master's at BC and there was a, a conference in Boston and I met my advisor there and I just thought you know she's a really interesting woman and I would love to study with her so I went to Notre Dame to study with Mary Keys yeah, that was the reason. And I knew that they had a good um, history of political philosophy. And I was always just interested in this conversation that had been unfolding. Um, and it seemed to me that they weren't narrow in just focusing on political questions. They were also interested in philosophy. And she, of course, was interested in the relationship between theology and political philosophy. So that appealed to me. Right, good. Yeah. How'd the project sort of take shape? I assume this comes out of your dissertation. No, um, my dissertation was on also on Augustine and Cicero. Um, it was on the question of the relationship between idolatry and injustice. Okay. So, you know, in book 19, where he says uh, the a political community can't be just if it doesn't give due worship to God. I was interested in trying to figure out whether or not this was just sort of a rhetorical throwaway comment or whether there was a sort of thick causal relationship between what we worship and how we treat each other in political life. And so I was kind of trying to work out the psychology of idolatry that seems to be in the whole text and kind of make a case for why actually it, it leads to injustice amongst human beings. So related theme for sure. Yeah. Um, a different question. Oh, that's fascinating. Tell me more about Cicero and what was it like to, to read Cicero along to Augustine. Yeah. The last person I had talked to, I don't know if you know Michael Delasky, 
No, no, I don't. No, no, no. Okay. Because um, he's writing about rhetoric. Um, and so he was telling me a little bit about Cicero and rhetoric. And I know that's like a rabbit hole that's I'm going to yeah. fall down very soon. Um, yeah. And I know that shows up in your book. But tell me about like, yeah, what was that dissertation work like? Um, so, so I was able to study with Walter Nagorski, who uh, is a fantastic Cicero scholar um, early on in my graduate studies. And so we read a lot of Cicero's political texts and also his philosophical texts and getting a handle on the way that he writes was really, really interesting. So I, you know, um, when I was studying at BC, one of the things that made me really interested in this tradition of political philosophy was reading platonic dialogues as dr dramatic works. And so looking at the drama and the way the characters, it's not just a tracing out of arguments, but considering why this character is says this at this point and their responses to Socrates and this and that. And there's a similar way of writing that goes on in Plato's dialogues that's really interesting. So being able to kind of look at his rhetoric, both when he is just discoursing to, to his reader, but then also the way that he um, has these conversations going on and why he picks the characters that he does um, to have these conversations. And I think that I haven't written about this and I'm certainly in no way an expert, but it seems to me that Augustine in his early dialogues very much displays an understanding of this way of writing that Cicero right. had sort of imitates it in his own Kasikiakum uh, dialogues. But yeah, so it's just, I, I, I think that that was an, a deepening of this interest that I had in the way that these authors write. So like a, with the hermeneutical questions have always kind of been spinning in the background of, of my approach to, to these ancient philosophical texts, because yeah, the use of rhetoric, the use of drama, all of these things I think are, are, are really fascinating to explore. And then, yeah, uh, Cicero's vision of politics. I thought it was really helpful um, to begin with Cicero before coming to Augustine, because one of the things that I've grown to realize is that otherwise we just read Augustine as responding to us as moderns with our political assumptions, but actually he's responding to Cicero yeah. and his political assumptions and the Roman political assumptions. So realizing the conversation, um, you know, goes in one direction is really helpful for not assuming um, the things that Augustine says are things that he agrees with us about, but rather the things that Augustine, when he's tacit, he's just like a tacit agreement with Cicero, actually, if that makes sense. Yeah, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but how much do you feel like Augustine draws from Cicero? How much do you feel like he's changing? Yeah, yeah like I said, it's a rabbit hole that I would go down that does not, hopefully does not include reading a bunch of Cicero. Um, <laughs> so I'm interested yeah. to know what you've learned. Yeah, um, so a couple of things come to mind. There's a really interesting article um, by Ernest Fortin from years and years ago where he compares the way that Cicero uses rhetoric and the way that Augustine uses rhetoric. And he says that Augustine, um, so that, you know, in order to, to persuade, to teach, and I think the third one is perhaps to inspire, mm -hmm. um, you have to order these in a certain way. And Cicero sometimes, in order to inspire and to persuade, subordinates the question of truth to kind of utility. Yeah. So this is Fortin's argument. He says that Augustine flips them and makes the top priority constantly truth, um, which means that utility is subordinated to the truth 
sometimes. So so places where C Augustine crit critiques Cicero is is exactly those places where um, you're saying this because you think it's for the public good that you say this, but actually uh, you're concealing something that's important or true. Um, uh, and so I think that that's a really important shift that happens from Cicero to Augustine, that Cicero is so civic minded that sometimes he thinks he needs to say maybe half truths in order to, to get people to be patriotic enough to dedicate their lives to the public good. Whereas Augustine thinks that no, the truth always comes first. And in fact, if you're trying to um, promote the public good in a way that manipulates the people to whom you're speaking, um, that's not actually going to cultivate a genuine public good. Uh. Uh, so that would be, I think, an important place of distinction. But he learns a great deal from Cicero. And I think that in the end, Cicero's vision, um, he respects a great deal and thinks that it points beyond itself. And there's antinomies within it that can't be resolved on its own terms. But once you uh, take part of it and think about it as ways of gesturing towards understanding the city of God, it makes sense. And then um, things that you can't really resolve when you're trying to create a good political order without um, thinking about political life uh, as a secondary good in relation to, to um, our ultimate home. Uh, those get resolved once you realize that politics has to be understood with an eschatological framework, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. No, that does make sense. So, just curiosity, but when you're writing on rhetoric in the city of God, um, other than perhaps that Fortune article, was that something that you had noticed a lot in recent Augustinian scholarship, or is that something that you sort of were bringing in from your master's? Yeah. Or your earlier uh, okay. Cicero work? Yeah, when I was reading the scholarship, there was not a lot of emphasis on Augustine's rhetoric. And Michael Lamb, who I think you've you already talked to him. Yeah. Yeah. So Michael and I were working on um, some Augustine scholarship around the same time. And we both one of the things that was really exciting was both of us recognizing this need to start talking about Augustine's use of rhetoric. And I think that that's been a real change in the conversation, say, over the last, I don't know how many years, five, ten years or something like that, that I think is going to be really fruitful. So um, I read a book, and I think Michael did too, um, by Pierre Hadot. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he did. It's all throughout his book. Yeah. And uh, that was really significant because I think for him as well, but for also for me, like, placing the city of God within that genre of psychagogy helped me understand his pessimism, not just pouring his emotions on the page, but rather as serving a function. And then once you realize that it's serving this function of trying to detach us from disordered love, so a disordered attitude towards our political community, uh, you see that that's not the end game. It's supposed to, in the end, resituate within, and as I said before, eschatological or sacramental framework where it points beyond itself and can't be seen as the final and ultimate good in which we place all our hopes. Yeah. yeah. Give me, and everyone else who's not reading Hado, what is psychagogy? Sure. What is that conversation? 
Yeah. Um, so he uh, was, I think, at a certain point, a Jesuit. I could be wrong about that. But he had this idea that the ancient philosophers were writing in the genre of spiritual exercises, which meant that the rhetoric was designed to counteract a disordered pull in the heart. So these ancient philosophers. So basically, psychagogy is the art of leading sick souls to health. Okay. Um, and it's designed to lead lead a reader by working on the soul of that reader. So if you have an excessive desire for meat, uh, say Marcus Aurelius, you're going to write, well, meat is just dead flesh, you know? And so that, like, the image of dead flesh is automatically going to counteract, like, the mouth-watering that's going on as you're thinking about the steak. So rhetoric is a kind of uh, counterpoint to... Um, being too pulled towards something. And just that I'm, I'm getting you right. It's a, yeah, yeah it's a, a being pulled toward an effectual sort of healing. It's not, oh, I'd never thought about meat being dead flesh. Right. right? So not an intellectual sort of thing, but a, yeah, Affect. a shifting effect. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, so in order that we might see clearly, so there's a kind of balancing out that has to happen in the affect so that we might be able to see the truth clearly, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the function of rhetoric within this genre of writing. Um, so if, if it's the case that Augustine is diagnosing his readers as having an excessive attachment to their political community, he's going to rail really strongly against it so that they might enter a kind of even plane of seeing things as they are. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Can I just push you, just explain, you said it's the um, the healing so that we can see clearly yeah. what is going on there to say, okay, clearly I know, for instance, meat is dead flesh. I might know Rome is not virtuous. What is going on to allow that clear sight of things we already know? Yeah. Um... Maybe just so what's, for, so how does Augustine, rhetoric fit in there? Yeah, when Augustine is writing, I think there's some of his audience that he thinks already knows, but need to be fortified because we're sort of weak in having that knowledge. And then I think there's another uh, segment of his audience that perhaps doesn't even yet know. So he's really thinking about pride as the thing that distorts our vision and blinds us to certain uh, truths about reality. Um, and so a lot of the book is trying to indict us of pride and showing us the futility of pride and the irony of pride. Um, so I think that maybe, yeah, you're right, that there's a certain segment of his audience that knows this in a sort of intellectual way. But we, and this would relate to, to your interest in the confessions, right? Like we have to kind of return to ourselves and see <laughs> actually, no, it's true that pride has blinded me and I am convicted by this and I, I need to, to, to beg for grace and, and, and God's help to pull me out of this and I need to return and to cling to God. So there's that I maybe a kind of Christian audience that, that knows it intellectually but has to kind of have this spiritual exercise where, where, we, where we return and are humbled, I suppose. And then I think that there's a segment of his audience that uh, does is is satisfied with their worldview and has to be kind of shaken out of it. 
And so he has to kind of make this case that that they are blinded by pride and this all these reasons are why. Yeah, absolutely. So to just, render them dissatisfied with with their framework, I think. I think that's right. Uh, and that's what you you just played in the book. Tell me about the Rome as simulacrum. Is that right? Yeah, so um definitely the city of God the earthly city is a simulacrum of the the city of God and and Rome sort of participates in that. Um, and then there's a way in which the Romans treat their city as if it were the city of God, right? This eternal city. So this yeah. there's this purity that's going on there. And so going back, this kind of relates back to what I was saying earlier about Cicero that, you know, wants to portray Rome as this great, um, great and lovable political community that has been so generous to her members. And so we we cannot but respond in sort of filial piety, essentially. And, you know, she's been wounded by some of her members. And so that that calls us to work especially hard to be especially patriotic so that we might make her into what she truly is. So that's kind of what's going on in Cicero. And I think some of the the Roman writers that Augustine's responding to. But Augustine really cuts through that because he thinks that it's trying to make. It's trying to pull on a kind of nostalgia or longing for the perfectly just city that Rome never was and never can be, but that it's true we have a deep, deep desire for it. And so he's trying to name the city that we truly have this deep, deep desire for and say not only that, but also becoming a member of this city is what's going to liberate you to truly help the city that you do love, right? I mean, you you do love Rome and that's good and that's it's it's a good thing to love Rome, but you can't love it in an illusion, but in its reality, which is a quite broken reality. Yeah. The idea of Rome as a simulacrum uh, is really kind of trying to point out that in pretending that Rome is something that she can never be, there's a sort of utility or a perceived utility, but it's ironic because it occludes, it, it prevents the members of that community from journeying towards the city that is the deepest desire of their hearts. So it's harmful for the members. Mm. And not only that, but it's not in the end going to give those members the wherewithal to truly benefit their wounded city because it's trading in manipulation and illusion and lies. Yeah. And those can't be health giving. You mentioned a minute ago pride as as something that keeps us from seeing clearly. Yeah. Make make that connection for me. The connection between pride and a love of the earthly city. Why is pride keeping us to to the earthly city or to Rome? Sure. Um so you know Augustine has the idea that the there are two cities that are formed by two kinds of love, you know, the the city of God formed by love, uh, the love of God carried to the point of contempt of self, the earthly city by self-love, which basically bloats to the point of contempt for God. So the two cities are really communities that are bound together by love. Um, and the city of God being bound together by God's love carried as far as the cross, right? Which... Um, is a gesturing out towards us that invites us into that very love to participate into it, to receive it, to respond to it. 
So that's the love of God in which we are created and for which we're made and that draws us back to itself and into it. But then self-love fundamentally is a is the refusal of that and the desire to be uh, our own entirely, not to be responsive, but to be in a certain sense autonomous. And so on Augustine's account, well, I think um, the passage that I think is really the most helpful and is actually the epigraph of my book is the the discussion of the fall of the devil. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, yeah, he's, Augustine says the devil refused to be subject to his creator and in his arrogance supposed that he wielded power as his own private possession and rejoiced in that power. And thus he was both deceived and deceiving because no one can escape the power of the omnipotent. He has refused to accept reality and in his arrogant pride presumes to counterfeit an unreality. Mm. So I think for Augustine, pride is really the denial of reality and the presumption that we can counterfeit an unreality, which is basically just like reality, except it edits out the things that we don't like. So we want the world to be just as it is, except we want to be the God of our world, essentially. And so this idea that the earthly city is bound together by a bunch of um, creatures that will not to be gods, but to be theirs, is sort of a community that is ironically bound together, not by genuine love, but by an agreement amongst each people that I want to love myself first and love everything else in myself. So there is no real... Uh, it's a parody of a community, right? It's like I'm all everyone is bound together by self-love, which is not a love of the other members, but by love of themselves. So this idea of the earthly city is a parody, is a falling away from genuine community and attempts to counterfeit it and to replicate it, but on a fundamentally different foundation, um, I think is at the heart of Augustine's vision of uh why it is that when you try and create a political community founded on self-love, it just can't hold together. It's not social, right? Mm. Because there's no love holding it together, but rather a kind of at best agreement that we have shared interests at the moment. Yeah. I think, I mean, you mentioned in the very first paragraph of this, that love of God is relational and self-love is not relational. I think later on you, you flesh out basically what you just said, but if if love of self is not relational, there can be no real community. Yeah, maybe just the appearance of it. Right, and the appearance of it can be seemingly very thick, right? Like if everyone in that community is formed to love glory as if it's the thing that's going to give them the deepest meaning in their lives, then there's a real affective bond amongst those members as they're delighting in the advancement of the empire and uh, competing for for a place within that project right so it it feels like that they're united in a common project but in the end Augustine is going to just say it's it's smoke and mirrors because even being formed into the desire for glory is tragic Right. Because if if I he kind of what does he say? He says, like, it's a shadowy imitation of eternal life. Right. To to die for for 
being remembered on the lips of everyone else, but you can't, you know, enjoy that. There's no enjoyment of God and of one another in God in that kind of immortality. There's no enjoyment at all in that kind of immortality, right? So he thinks it's this deeply tragic cycle of kind of trying to find ways to incorporate others into this project that helps me get what I want. Um, But in the end, no one gets anything good. Yeah, same way there, because glory does seem relational in some Mm -hmm. extent. Yeah, yeah, right. Yes, that's true. So in a certain extent, it is, but not on a foundational level. So in the end, I think Augustine thinks that the desire for glory is a competitive desire, which is constantly propelling the Romans to more and more outlandish feats to to become famous for the sake of Rome. But then these feats, which are outlandish, are also in the end, he thinks, kind of forms of self-mutilation and self-destruction. And so there's a deep irony at the heart of it where this competition, this thirst for glory to the degree that it's kind of... um, uh, fanned in people, made to grow. Um, it's going to lead them to 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 do things that are n- not genuinely good for themselves, right? Which are, you know, he gives the example of like Musius Sevola, who like sticks his hand in a flame to show how intense the Romans are, or Curtius, who throws himself into a chasm um, because. The, the oracles have said Rome should throw its very best prize into the chasm and he thinks he's Rome's best prize. And so these sort of somewhat distorted pictures of where it is that that an uh, uh, unleashed desire for glory tends. But you're right in a certain sense that that's what would happen if if glory is 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 turned into our deepest desire it's it's destructive i think you could make a case that you know thinking about augustine's order of loves if you loved glory in an ordered way you would love it in love of god which would mean that it would take secondary place and then these uh pathologies wouldn't arise in the same kind of way yeah yeah for as much as we compare our own situation to Rome's. Mm-hmm. It's a very different sort of autonomy and pride than you get in, you know, the caricature libertarian who just wants for everyone to leave him alone. Um, it's instead, you know, it, it's a very engaged, yeah, like you say, parodic city. Right? There is some sort of relation going on, but it's not real right. relation. Right. Yeah, and he's really looking at the root of things. So, I mean... In, in, in fleshing this out, you know, I'm really focusing on the negative, which is like the incisive part of his critique, right? And there's another part where there's, you know, he admires certain things about the Roman civilization and the way in which it inhabits an empire in a way that is at least better than the Assyrian form of empire, right? So you yeah. could say a lot of positive things too, but what he's trying to do is really like, make it not possible he hopes for his reader to love rome as if it were the eternal city Mm. like he wants to cut off that possibility by showing this basically seedy underbelly of all of these things that look look nice from the perspective of the romans and kind of show a dynamic at work that that he thinks he wants to move 
move his readers to, to feel compassion for their fellow citizens and to try and uh, live out of a different love, which would be in some way healing of this community. So he's not trying to say that there's nothing good there, but he's saying, look how diseased it is, right? And don't love the disease because the disease is not the cure. Mm. In fact, here's the cure. Yeah, that's right. So what's the cure? Um, Tell me, I mean, where's that, that shift? Because you take a very, uh, you say, sacramental or eschatological move. Yeah. Um, so, so let me kind of speak a little bit more precisely. Like when I say yeah, sure. there's a cure, cure for politics, I don't mean that Augustine thinks you can fix politics. <laughs> right. Um, so in another article, I, I write like a cure. When I talk about a cure, I mean responding to the root of the problem, which I think for Augustine is a problem with the human heart. And that's where we have to administer the cure. And the cure, of course, is love of God, but it's not something that's going to fix politics. Rather, it's kind of a way of managing a chronic illness, right? So if we're constantly okay. through our self-love wounding our political communities, then he's sort of suggesting that to the degree that we let God um, work through us and let God's love work through us and to try and inhabit our political roles in a spirit of of genuine love, then we can at least be a healing presence in our wounded community. So I think he mm. makes space for um, participating in political life without participating in the dynamic of the earthly city. Um, yeah, there's a lot of steps to get there, but that would be kind of where I where I think he ends up. Yeah, I did want to ask you before I get to the sacramental part of things. Yeah. You you do, especially chapter four, explores pessimism. Yeah. And maybe you can speak to pessimism and realism and hope. I know you have been writing about hope in Augustine a little bit lately in Augustinian studies. And having mm -hmm. just talked to Michael Lamb, I'm, I'm very curious about what's going on there. Yeah. So he, I think, has thought been thinking about hope a lot longer. Um, and so I'm sure he has more more insightful things to say about it. But, um, so yeah, I don't think, I think Augustine is really interesting because he helps us navigate this world that is broken in a way that doesn't tend towards despair, but rather allows us to live in a kind of hope, which I do think is, is rooted in eschatological, eschatological hope, but it is a sacramental worldview, meaning that we can think about this life as being already a way, a time to participate in God's love here and now. Um, and so there's a kind of intimate connection between what is now and what will be and that we can already participate in God's love. And there's this constant perpetual invitation to do that. So I think what's really interesting about Augustine's pessimism is that it points beyond itself. It points beyond itself to a healthy vision. Uh, he's not detaching his Roman readers from their republic so that they won't uh, participate in it anymore. Rather, he's detaching them so that they might participate in it in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. um, now, now, I don't think that's his, like, the end goal of writing The City of God. I think it's right. a second order, a second order outcome, but I don't think it means nothing to him. I yeah. think he thinks that it's a real good um, to be able to genuinely uh, 
contribute to earthly peace. He wants to say that earthly peace is a genuine good and we should celebrate when there is something like it. Right. Um, But it's much better for that something like earthly peace to be in the process of being regenerated from the root um, by love of God, which can like reinvigorate by expanding our imagination, by uh, not capitulating to these narrow ideas of what it means to participate in politics, which is basically saying you have to act out of self-love or domination or manipulation. Like he, th- this return to the root, I think, is really significant. So his pessimism has to be read as something that points towards that possibility rather than as like the end of the project, right? Yeah. So that's why that's in chapter four and not chapter six, right? It's like a moment in in his work. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's so much conversation over how much that occurs, right? How much we do reinvigorate the city or get a, yeah. a temporary piece. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah, because so on the one hand, in a realist framework, there's a sort of despair undergirding it. Right. That, you know, in order to participate in politics, you have to engage in moral compromises or um, be a realist in in how the sausage is made or this or that. I don't think Augustine capitulates to that um, at all. And I think he's very aware of the possibility and perhaps likelihood of failure of making any kind of tangible difference here and now. But he he sort of liberates, I, I think, he liberates the reader to live in this world not so desperate about temporal outcomes, but rather in a posture of trust that God makes good of, of every, everything in a very, and sometimes in a very hidden way. And so part of the earthly city's domination is rooted in a kind of illusion and in a kind of image making where it makes itself seem so, so powerful that I must submit to it and I can only engage in politics if I act in this way. So there's this incredible pressure that the earthly city puts on us to act according to these behaviors of self-love. And Augustine, I think what's beautiful about his approach to politics is that he's 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 liberating his readers from that necessity. Um, but in order to do that, you have to put your hopes beyond political goals, because as soon as you make your ultimate goal a political goal, that necessity returns because there's nothing better in mind. Right. If so it becomes think, anything attainable, it's it's in some ways less than the true goal. Right. Yeah. Right. And so he like lets you participate in something that is at the root good. He's inviting you to participate in something that is at the root good. And so the only thing that is genuinely capable of bringing about a cultural renewal, but not with a naive naivete that this is going to work or going to fix things. Um, And then the only way that we could not fall into despair with that lack of certainty is if our sights are set beyond politics right so that's where hope i think really comes in that we have to be said that god is faithful and he's promised this city and he's invited us into this work 
where he is going to he is going to make the good out of it. And we're constantly being offered the possibility to participate in that work if we're faithful to him. And we're not going to see how that's going to bear fruit, but it might bear fruit. And God's in charge of seeing how it's going to bear fruit. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess in many ways, that's sort of like his argument for virtues as, yeah. oh, yeah, they're not something to, to seek, seek the kingdom of God. And then oh, these virtues will show up out of grace, but not uh, not because they're the thing we spend all our time on. So, like, just this idea of we're participating or receiving or responding, and that kind of gratitude might be something that elicits genuine grace in us. Yeah, I mean, genuine virtue in us. Genuine virtue, but in in the same way of sort of political goods, temporal political goods. Mm-hmm. Right. If if the political goods we're seeking are always directed toward a love of God of the city of God, um, yeah. then sort of the the consequence is perhaps, I think Augustine would say, is better political life, right? Yeah, right. Because he thinks that, uh, you know, everybody is put in a position where we bear responsibility towards others in our lives. And so if we can inhabit those roles with an attitude of service, then we will be better members of that social order. And so there, there, there is this glimpse at, as to what, what it was supposed to be that we were social, right, in this temporal sense, right? And so he's trying to recover our sense that we can engage in this order um, out of a posture of service, whereas everything about politics as the earthly city casts it um, makes us jaded about that possibility, right? or yeah. kind of cynical about it, or um, marries it to some other um, goal that undermines it, for example. That's very helpful. Tell me about sacramental perspectives for sure. the not Catholic of us. What is sacramental sure. perspectives or sacramental yeah. ontology or whatever you want to call it? Yeah. Yeah, so so this idea of the psychagogic rhetoric, um, so you know, uh, the art of bringing sick souls to the state of health, and then the idea of sickness and blindness being related to each other. So Augustine has this idea that pride blinds us, and you see it at the very beginning of the City of God, where he says that uh, it is a great and difficult task to persuade the proud of the virtue of humility, a virtue which allows the humble to soar over the peaks upon which the proud are standing all the way up to the heavens. And so he has this idea that the world, as it seems from the heights, from the perspective of pride, uh, is not the whole story because those at the peaks don't look up and they don't see how in order to arise beyond where they are, uh, they have to rely on the gift, gift of grace. So Augustine has this idea that if we were to see the world truly, we would see that God is deeply present in the world, even as he's beyond the world. And so that's what sacramental vision recovers. So Augustine has this idea that the whole created order speaks of and points to God. And God is deeply present in this order if we just see it. But pride pride blinds us to that aspect of it. So we don't we don't see God in it. We only see ourselves and material that we can make into whatever we want it to be. 
so for Augustine, the created order is spoken by God into existence, which means it has this fundamental original meaning, which is always to point us back towards God. And that is what the sacramental worldview sees. And it's something that has to be recovered because our pride has blinded us to it. And so the goal of Augustine's psychagogic rhetoric is to bring us back to a position of seeing reality sacramentally. Which means seeing God in it and seeing it as pointing to God. Political life included is what I'd like to argue that if human beings are social by nature, the most social creature by nature, then it was always for us to work together for earthly peace. Mm. Being temporal, being bodily, this was a project that human beings were supposed to be working on together. So how do we look at that project, which still remains because our needs, our earthly needs still remains, and how do we look that as something where God is present and um, engaging in this project as a sort of pilgrim, right? As a pilgrim who sees this life as pointing beyond itself. So the sacramental worldview looks at created reality as something that points beyond itself to God um, and is receptive to the meaning that God seeks to give it and has given it from the very beginning. So if the goal of the whole city of God is to recover sacramental vision, then what would a sacramental view of politics look like? Well, I think it would suggest that our political order has been distorted by the self-love, our self-love, um, so that we no longer see the genuine face of political life anymore, but rather it's been marred, it's been covered over by these um, self-seeking projects that undermine the genuine meaning of what it means to be social. Mm. So the last chapter really tries to work out um, how Augustine presents politics as he's presenting his sacramental vision. And I make the case that he really does present the political project as something natural, but he is not an idealist, which means he doesn't think that we can get back there. Rather, he thinks the earthly city is always with us, and we, unfortunately, are always in some way participating in it. But he mm -hmm. urges us to try and not participate in it, but rather try and live in our political communities, seeing politics for what it was meant to be. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier, where I think he presents the whole order of creation as a kind of nexus of service, where you have these different creatures that he's created that each have a role to play that is beautiful and distinct. And there's this kind of, there was supposed to be this great commonwealth of creation, essentially, where each creature uh, in living truly what they are would be serving the other creatures because there's this kind of interdependence going on, right? Yeah. And so trying to live out our particular roles, mindful of that, out of this um, posture of service would be at least in some way returning and recalling the human community back to that deeper meaning of what political life was genuinely for. Yeah, that's what I try and work out in that chapter. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, very helpful. It's a lot. And it's a, <laughs> it's a demanding task to say, come yeah. back to what political life should be or what social life should be. Yeah. 
definitely yeah. not a a realist compromise, as you said. No, he's realistic in the sense that he doesn't. He's not rosy about what uh, the effective outcome is going to be, or that we can solve the problem of self love, or that we can overcome it. He's very aware that these problems are going to be ongoing, right? And he wants his reader to be aware of it. And so that would be his realism. But he doesn't call us to a compromise or a moral compromise. Rather, he calls us to live out of, um, to kind of return to God so that we might, um, yeah, yeah, bear witness to the deeper meaning of social life. Absolutely. I don't know if it's, forgive me, I don't know if it's in your book or Mary Keys because they're bound the same. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I think it's, I think it's her book. She has a little analysis of Theodosius as sort of the ideal ruler in this in-between. And just saying, like, that's probably not the emperor anyone wants. Um, but it's it's at least existing within the, the political sphere that we're given without committing to it. That's not your book, is right. it? Uh, I do talk about Theodosius there. Um, I know you do. I don't remember which book says this is not the emperor anyone wants. Uh, Yeah, I think that might be Mary. Okay. That's probably Mary. Um, Yeah, she's, I really enjoyed her book. Me too. Um, Yeah, it was really good. I loved the, like, references to Lewis and Tolkien. It was just, it was fantastic. Uh, Yeah, so, like, Theodosius is so interesting, right? Because it seems like the history of who he was was maybe a little bit more complicated, but he's definitely, Augustine's definitely using it as a mirror of princes that like, as you know, love of God can bear fruit in politics. And this is why it is a return to the genuinely social qualities of, of that political life is, is, is really defined by. Um, Lately, I've been really sort of just thinking on, I, I don't know enough about it with a biography, but thinking on Augustine's own political life, just yeah. this idea of stepping down from the empirical court and a promising political career only to end up in a political job like 10 years later. Yeah. Um, clearly, it's not a problem with being political. Right. right but there's, there's some distinction there. Um, yeah of how that is ordered to himself or to the church and what that looks like. That's right. Yeah, it was a kind of, I think, yeah, a sacrifice of a certain set of goals that was really important for him to kind of come through to the other side. Yeah, and I don't think he really enjoyed that administrative work ever. (laughs) But it's just so funny that he comes back to essentially the same job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, more political, more like judicial work. But right. to come back to a political life of rhetoric. Yes, that's right. And it's sort of transfigured. But I think perhaps because he had to do all that administrative work, that's probably where his realism, and I don't mean cynicism, I mean realism, uh, comes through. Because he's aware of the brokenness of things. He's not, mm-hmm. he's not, you know, writing in some ivory tower somewhere. He's, you know, dealing with, as a broken person, dealing with these other broken people and trying to, you know, work through tangible problems that they're all facing. So I think he has a kind of experience that he brings to it. Um, I think that's, that's right. And that's helpful to remember. Yeah. Cause it's, it's a very different day job. 
Even yeah. if it looks the same at times. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I don't envy his day job, I'll say. No. Well, I could probe you on this book and ask about that all day. But tell me what you're doing now. You said you're moving. Moving, yeah. Yeah, um, moving soon. <laughs> I assume to get to Villanova, you told them you were about to work on some That's great project. Right. So what theoretically are you doing now or soon? Yeah, um, I'm at the very beginning of a project, which is about Rousseau's reception of Augustine. Okay. Um, I think he's really, it's very, it's very at the start of it, but he's responding to a lot of the 17th century French Augustinian debates, um, which I think shape his particular reception of Augustine. So yeah, just trying to work out how Augustine is received in these 17th century debates, the metaphysical change, so the the metaphysical shifts that have taken place in the meantime that I think make Augustine's Christian particip Platonist participation account uh, if 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 that's no longer the infrastructure in which the things Augustine says are understood, um, what happens? So you know you've got the Jansen Jansenists. I'm trying to understand how Augustine's received by the Jansenists, how that whole debate is shaping Rousseau's kind of rejection of the Augustinian framework. So yeah, very much at the beginning of this project, but I'm really interested in the way that Rousseau is thinking about Augustine why he's reacting to him the way that he does and how he's sort of taking up parts of the Augustinian political framework, but really recasting them. Man, so that's really fun. Yeah. It is really fun. That is quite the project. Yeah, yeah, it'll probably take me a long time, but you know. I look forward to it. I learn, so. Yeah, because you know, Rousseau presents himself as a kind of new Augustine in a lot of ways. Right. So trying to probe that a bit. Yeah, I think I might have asked you earlier, how do you define your work? Because I know you said you, you did political science, you're, you are in a philosophy department, you're going to a humanities department, mm -hmm. and especially this book I'm struck with, it's a, a book of political science, uh, political commentary, like you said, even the, the epigraph is about the devil. Like It's a very theological political yeah. work. Is that just because it's Notre, you were working at Notre Dame? Um, or in Catholic schools, or sort of, where do you see this work? Yeah, so I mean, I was trained as a political theorist, which means that the questions of political theory are the ones that really animate me. Um, the relationship, yeah, why are our communities so broken? How are human beings shaped by our political communities for better or for worse, particularly in being, if it's true that we're made for God? How does being part of this political community make that easier or harder to figure out? Those are questions that I've been interested in a long time. So in order to understand these things about politics, I think that you've got to go to prior questions and look at other areas, other fields of study. So yeah, I would say I'm primarily a political theorist, but in order to understand the political questions I want to answer, I've got to think through um, theological and philosophical prior questions. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely fair. I just wanted this to sort of understand how you at least understand your own work. Since I don't have a degree in theology, I can't really say I'm a theologian. You know, I don't have the training. I've really been trained in this whole philosophical 
and political conversation. And so I've been really interested in how Augustine fits in that conversation, but what it is about his Christianity that changes the terms of the conversation. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Great. Well, if you could recommend other work, um, if I can, I'd like to exclude Mary Keys and Michael Lamb because you've recommended them to me before. Oh, sure. Yeah, Mary and Michael, that, that, that would have been what I had said. Uh, well, I think John Cavadini is always probably one of the best and most interesting readers of Augustine out there. So his, his essays are not, I don't think there's anything particularly new that he's he's just come out with, but but I would say that they're really helpful windows. Uh, of course. Into, yeah. into Augustine, Augustine's understanding. Um, so maybe I'll just, I'll just leave you with him. I think that's all the questions I have. Okay. As far okay. as time goes, not not yeah, curiosity. I've never uh, uh, done this before, so I, I hope that I answered your questions. You did. You did. Yeah. True. Well, thank well, you I, so much for your time. Thank you for thank you for inviting me, and it was great to meet you. Yeah, you too. I hope we talk again. Um, yes, I look forward to it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Veronica Roberts Ogle. If you're interested in her work, go buy her book, Politics and the Earthly City in Augustine City of God. There's a link in the description. Also check out the work that she recommended, the essays by John Cavadini, and of course the work by Michael Lamb and Dr. Mary Keith. Our theme music for the show is Oh Great Light by Jess Ray. I'm your host, Joshua Blanchard. And I'll see you next month for another conversation on the life and work of St. Augustine. As always, thanks for listening.